Good morning. I saw a, uh, speaking of Mother's Day, I saw a sign on a church marquee recently that said, uh, church marquee now, just remember that, mothers are the glue that hold the family together. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. Does that bother you? Jesus is the real one, but the mother is really the father. Uh, it's to be the father, right? Yeah, who does he place? Who does God place the responsibility to for spiritual leadership? But I got to thinking about it, and originally I was thinking, well, there's that. You know, I mean, God put a man and a woman together, right, to hold the family together. But I got to thinking, really, actually, if, if you're going to be biblical about it, it's it's love, the love of God that holds the family together. Right? Each member of the family has to be committed to the same love with one another. And that's um, not only true in our in our families, our biological families. Um, and if you have unsaved family members, um, you know that's they don't have the Holy Spirit there to help work that in as well. So you have a family commitment, and you have other things. And sadly, we have breakdowns of families, right? We have. I, I watched the video recently of a it was a, a video, um, you know, these um, uh, ring. Doorbells, you know, have a little video camera built into them, and, and uh, it was a brother, an older brother, that had driven like 400 miles to go and shoot his younger brother. Shoot him? Yeah. So I don't know why I didn't give him the whole detail. Just so you have that in families, um, but in in the family of God, this love that that we've been talking about, and that Jesus is demonstrating here by washing the feet of the disciples, and he's teaching them that lesson. He says, I. It's not the foot washing itself, right? But that's an expression of this love, this self-sacrificing, others, God first, others second love, right? Uh, it's the way of the cross. Um, so anyway, but that was a good little thought for us as we think about Mother's Day. It's, it's a shame that, that really our culture kind of puts that kind of pressure on women to try to hold everything together shouldn't be that way, right? As, as men, especially, we need to, to stand up and, first of all, demonstrate, and secondly, insist that there be commitment and love, others first kind of love in the family, and in our churches. Um, joy, right? Joy, right. That's right. Jesus, others, Good place to learn. I learned a lot of things from her. <laughs> we'll talk more about that in the service time. Let's have a word of prayer one more time and and uh, get into our text this morning. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I'm, uh, the more I study, uh, restudy, because it's not like it's the first time, but the more I keep coming back to these chapters, these five chapters. 13, John 13 through 17, uh, the more I am just amazed and astounded and feel at a, at a 
severe loss to yeah. even describe what's happening here, the holiness, the condescension, the majesty and the beauty of your love, standing in stark contrast to the hatred and self-serving uh, self-love of the disciples and especially Judas and even the devil himself uh, is such a stark contrast. And you receive so much glory both Father and Son, in these moments leading up to and including the cross and after as well, of course, but such a profound, profound time. And I pray that, uh, I think John MacArthur is right, it feels like the holy place and then the holy holies. We feel um, like we need to take our shoes off when we study this text. But it's it's here, it's given to us. It's given to us a, a normal, average, everyday sinners to handle this text and to look into it and to uh, as it were go back through the inspiration and, and help your holy spirit back to those moments ourselves where we can we can almost have our feet uh, again washed by the lord himself in, in in his word and i pray that you would do that this would not just be a time where we're amazed by your love but that we're convicted as well that we fall uh, so far short it's like the, the song that we listened to last time that I'm not sure I can even claim this kind of love. And so I pray that, that you would help us to realize that this isn't just, you know, a love to sit up on the shelf or that we put it in a frame and isn't beautiful, but it's it's something we are to put on our feet. We're to put in our hands and we're to, to exercise this and to love each other in your stead as if you were loving others through us. That's what we need to grab a hold of. And so I pray that you will help us, help me, all of us to do that, to submit ourselves to your authority, to your text here this morning. Speak to us again from, from your precious word. In Jesus' name. Uh, before we get into John 13, and yes, we are actually going to get into the text this morning. Uh, lots of introduction that we've been doing, right? Kind of big 10,000-foot uh, views. We've landed the plane now, and we're, we're on the ground. We're going to start walking through it. But I, I wanted to, um, in, uh, uh, Dad has renewed my subscription to this Table Talk magazine. This is a, a part of the Ligonier uh, Ministries that R.C. Sproul had, had founded many years ago. And uh, it's really good devotional, I've, I've recommended. They're, they're um, a little bit deeper than, say, your daily bread. Not any wrong with daily bread, but it does make you think a little bit. It's a good, it's a really good text. Um, they have some good articles as well. That's sort of a theme this month. But anyway, I was I was reading Wednesdays. I thought there were some good points here. And and what I'm trying to get to remember that in our review or in our in our context setting, as we get get into the upper room, um, the disciples. Let me let me ask you. Let's see how effective I've been communicating this. Where where is the disciples' mindset as, as they're coming into the upper room? Who's the greatest? Right? What, what? And they're and they're arguing about who's the greatest in 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 a larger context of an expectation of what? What are they expecting to happen? Right. Remember, we call that the triumphalistic 
view of the Messiah, right? They had a triumphalistic view that he was going to triumph over their enemies, particularly the Romans, right? And he was going to come and affirm their religious system and reward all of those Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't know how they could justify the Sadducees, i.e. chief priests could justify uh, basically what amounted to extorting the people uh, at the temple, okay? But anyway, that's what they... They, meaning not just the disciples, but the nation is at large, was expecting from their Messiah, the tri triumphalistic view of the Messiah. Okay? And so the disciples especially are over the moon because they're just, they're not the elite, right? They're just blue-collar dudes from, from the north, right? From, from Galilee. And by the way, they're pretty young here, too. Sometimes I know in my mind I'm thinking, oh, they're, you know, they're like very mature men. They're not like very mature Sometimes uh, age and maturity is not synonymous, right? I know people who are well into their 50s, 60s and still act like they're trying to be in high school or college, you know what I mean? They're kind of that. Uh, but anyway, uh, but be that as it may, they're pretty young. Uh, I would guess, best guess, John, uh, at the time that this is happening to him, he's probably, you know, maybe at the youngest around 18, probably realistically around 20, 21, somewhere around. Because remember, he goes on to live quite a, quite a ways. This is written about 50 years, scholars estimate, after these events. So you know, he's had a lot of time to reflect, right? And uh, anyway, so the point I was trying to make is, you know, in, in the lead up to this, Luke's, in, um, Luke's account makes it clear that they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Well, what was interesting about this uh, table talk on Wednesday was it went back in Luke, of all Places because Luke earlier also gives us at least one other, and from what I can tell, there was at least uh, one other. So a total of three accounts in all the Gospels where they were arguing at different times about who was going to be the greatest. So this wasn't this wasn't their first rodeo with this argument and this jostling for position. Okay, so I wanted to read just parts of this article to us. Uh, this is from Luke nine. 46 through 48. An argument rose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the, the reasoning in their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Does that sound familiar? Remember that? Um, <clears throat> here's just a few. Um, again, I won't read the entire thing. But uh, it says here, Luke 9.46 tells us that an argument rose among the disciples regarding which of them had the greatest status or position. Note the incongruity of the argument in the context. Jesus had just informed the disciples that he would be handed over for execution, pointing, pointing to his humbling himself in his death on the cross, right? So here in this context, which is not the upper room, this is, you know, maybe nine months, a year earlier, in this context, Jesus is foretelling his own humbling uh, in the crucifixion. And, and it, there again, this argument, this self-advancement stands in stark contrast to what Jesus just said, right? And, uh, and so the thoughts of the disciples should 
have been on their need for personal humility. Instead, they were bickering over advancing themselves. They lacked self-awareness to recognize how at odds their argument was at that moment, and they needed strong teaching to get the point. And Jesus takes that illustration of the child, right, and brings them up and teaches them that lesson. And then I, I highlighted this. Um, the point is that jockeying for position and self-advancement at the expense of others is at odds with the kingdom of God. Let me read that again, because that's the point of what's happening here in the upper room, exact same point he's trying to make for them. The point is that jockeying for position and self-advancement at the expense of others is at odds with the kingdom of God. Yeah, that's how it's done in the world, right? It's exactly how it's done in the world. Jesus wants his people not to argue with each other over their status in the kingdom, but rather to show humility and serve one another. And it cites Philippians, exactly what we had been looking at last time, right? Philippians 2, um, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, consider others more important than yourselves, right? Have that mind in the same mind that Christ exhibited. Okay? Thus, we should seek to bless others in the church and to pursue self um, interest in a godly way and never at the expense of other people. If we show honor to all people in the church, we are heeding God's command. I ask you, who is it in the church that you have the hardest time doing that for? Okay. One of the ones that, that I have to catch myself with is children. Sometimes I remember as a child being in church, and I've, I've, I've told this to the leaders many times. One of the things that we, the Lord has blessed our church over the years with many children that have come and gone uh, in, in our ministry here. And, and one of the things that, that, that I said to the men, and they were very strongly in agreement with as well, is that as a child, I went to many churches and felt like church was for adults, but children were tolerated. You know what I'm saying? And uh, Dennis, uh, when he was at the camp, and I think they still have his motto, um, uh, had a little motto there for the camp that was uh, where children are important, special, special, and treated that, and treated that way. Yeah. I like that yeah. because no matter the age of somebody in the church, even if it's that little squirrely girl boy, okay, and and, and we used to, and believe me, we've had some we've had some kids in here <laughs> in the past. Uh, your son, okay, <laughs> but but we've had some kids in here. Uh, Tavo, I'm thinking of particularly. Tavo, Tavo had some special needs. He was not, he was not blessed with a uh, full deck, shall we say? And, and uh, he, he was loved. He, he, it was amazing to me because he wanted to be here. He wanted to be here. I'm gonna go to church, go to church, right? And and, uh, and but he would be back there in the middle of the service. Ah, you know, just like this loud, almost like epileptic kind of outburst. You know, and, and you got visitors come in and it's like, oh boy, I hope you know in there and they don't come back. You know, I mean, but you know, God is God loves Tabo. And if you're if you're coming here for you know for a concert, you know, save it for Saturday night where you can pay tickets and, and not be interrupted, okay? We're here to minister to people in the name of the Lord, and that even means little children like Tabo, right? 
where the Lord receives them, and we, we minister to them. And, uh, and, and I might say, maybe it's not children, maybe it's somebody else whose personality rubs you the wrong way. But it doesn't matter. You are to set that aside, no matter how much. Here's a profound thing. As we, as we read about Jesus washing the feet, he washed the feet even of Judas, knowing full well who Judas was, what he had done already, and the fact that the devil was waiting for that moment. Okay? And Jesus humbles himself and he does it anyway. He shows love to that. That's a profound example. All right, so a little convicting moment uh, for me and, and maybe for you too. <clears throat> this is the kind of love we're talking about here, right? That self-sacrificing God kind of love that we are called to. And it's not, like I said in my prayer, it's not an isolated thing. It's not to be, oh, isn't that beautiful? Oh, let's, let's adore the love of Jesus sitting on the mantle over there. We'll put our, our, the love of Jesus over here on the mantle and we'll look at it. It's, it's meant to come off the mantle and into your life, right? And, and, God, and God has equipped us, listen, Romans 5, 5. God has poured his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given. So we have no excuse. We can't say, well, I can't love like that. Well, God has given you that kind of love through his Holy Spirit. And if you don't have that kind of love, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, this is chapter 8 of Romans you what? You don't belong to him. You're not saved. If you don't exhibit this kind of love, no matter what you say, right? John, who wrote this, is going to say the same thing in his first epistle. If anyone says that he loves God but hates his brother, what? He's a liar. And the truth is not in So we there's no excuses. No excuses. we got to love each other this way. Including me. <laughs> Of course, it's this way, right? You don't want to help me, not, not the other way. Do what I say, not as I do. Okay. Yeah, right. No respect. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into our text, all right? Like we said, okay. Um, our first point on our outline here, I want to be sure I'm not getting ahead of my time or out of my time. All right. Our first point in the outline, number one, is as far as we're going to get today. It's so profound, okay? John, the first point here says, John sets the stage for the upper room discourse. Let's have somebody please read those first three verses of John 13. Okay? John 13, 1 through 3. I want to read that same, that's the NIV there, right? It's interesting to hear how the different translators handle the very end of, of verse 1. That's a hard thing to translate accurately. It's, it's, it's even hard to get it in Greek, um, let alone translate it accurately into English. So we'll, we'll break that down. But here's how Weiss handles this, okay? If you don't have this, if, if you're kind of a, a book collector, 
uh, particularly uh, Bibles or translations uh, and, and Bible helps and that kind of thing. I highly recommend do it this way. So these are just pages. <laughs> um, but I highly recommend uh, Weiss expanded translation of the New Testament. It's really helped me a lot of years. It's not anything that reads eloquently from the pulpit, but it's there to, if you know anything about Weiss, he was a New, a New Testament professor, I think at Moody. Um, yeah, okay, and, and, and he, uh, very, very, very respected uh, New Testament Greek scholar, wrote a lot of, uh, in fact, there's some books back there yeah. for free that you can get that are part of his, fruit of his effort, uh, we said, uh, word studies and so forth. But he wrote a, a, an expand, what he called an expanded translation of the New Testament, meaning that instead of like a word for word, uh, he would take a Greek word sometimes, not always, but often, and turn it into a phrase in English that helps you fully capture the meaning there. So it doesn't read very poetically. You know, some of the translations are very beautiful when you read them and they flow well. His doesn't do that, and you'll hear that when I read it. But what it does do is it exposes a fuller, richer meaning uh, that, that many of the other translations sometimes miss, okay? So let me read this particularly, uh, the first verse there in his expanded translation. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, since he knew that it was that his hour had come, the purpose of which was that he should pass over out of this world to the Father, having loved with a divine self-sacrificial love his uniquely owned ones, those in the world, he loved them to the uttermost. It's a lot there. So let's break that down. In fact, if we only get past verse 1 today, that's fine. Because this verse is huge, huge. It sets up everything, right, that, that's to come. Uh, John is introducing us, uh, particularly verse 1, all three of these verses, but particularly verse 1. He's setting up for the next five chapters, right? So it's very important that we understand. First question that I want to ask you is, notice that, uh, and, and both Weiss and the ESV here and NIV, whatever translation you have, the very first phrase there that we're confronted with is it says, now before the feast of the Passover. All right, class, we have a biblical brain trust here, right? Y'all have been taught the word, some of you have studied formally in schools for many, so I got a question for you. Okay. Um, challenging question. I thought they were about to celebrate the Feast of the Passover together, right? How can they be celebrating the Passover if this is before the Passover? Passover is the next day. No, it's hard, man. Right? We'll run the coffee back there first and then ask the question. What do y'all think? <laughs> Those that have been to school are not even looking at the teacher.
they travel during that time to get to a certain place? Like it was only for the crystal and the people that traveled by foot for the Passover, so there's a little journey between the times? There is a lot of journey, but by this time it would have already happened, most like for most of them, okay? Because remember, this is around the actually the evening of the 14th of Nisan when they would celebrate it. The deal that I think I think it was a, a Wednesday actually when Jesus crucified. But um, regardless, okay, so it's 14th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan, by law, by God's law, was the day that they would select the Passover lamb. So every the Passover meal would be celebrated in households, not at the temple. Okay, and so they would they would have have to have already selected the Passover lamb. Now, because of the logistics of a million plus people concentrating into a a city that usually has around 250,000 in it, and people are traveling, remember, it's not planes and buses and everything, it's everybody by foot and animals, right, and carts. Because of all the logistics, they did fudge a little bit. They did let, you know, it could be on the 11th, so it'd be around the 10th and 11th when you'd select the lamb. But this is several days past that point, so we're already, the lamb has been selected, has been living in the household, the place has been selected, and they would also do a cleaning, right? They would have to get rid of all the leaven. So that's where we get the idea of spring cleaning. They would have cleaned, cleansed the whole place and prepared it in several days prepared for this. Okay. But good good thoughts. They're the brave ones being able to step up here. Congratulations. Bill stars both of you. Okay. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Is that one of those tie days or whatever? Good yes. One of those tie ones. I said, but that would be coming. That would be coming after Passover feast. That would be the next day, the first day of the feast of unleavened bread. They have two different days set aside: one for the northern part of the kingdom, the southern part. Okay, somebody's been doing their studies. Say that, that again. I read that in John MacArthur's. Yeah. Okay. That's how they celebrate So for the people in the north, so for people in the north, which remember Jesus himself and all of the disciples except for Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was from Judea, okay? But the vast majority of them were from Galilee and they celebrated Passover traditionally on the night before Passover day. So the people in the north of Judea would celebrate it the following day. That's why I'm not from North Carolina. That's why John says before the Passover they're celebrating the Passover because that's when the Galileans would do it. So that was like a their tradition. That was their tradition. And that's why I like what my wife said about Christmas, because those of us who are spiritual, like Werner would agree, <laughs> celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve traditionally, right? We open our presents then. Christmas morning is, you know, it's it's a nice afterthought, but you know. <laughs> so in, in truthfulness, okay. Uh, and actually worked out very, very well because, um, you know, the Galileans who would come, remember this is one of the feasts that they're required, uh, is it Leviticus 23, I think, right? Where there's three feasts where where all of the, the, the God-fearing Jews, especially the males 20 and over, had to come to the temple area to celebrate, right? So this feast wasn't celebrated in the temple per se, but they would congregate to Jerusalem. So it, it made, it really worked out uh, logistically wise, when you would have that many Jews coming from Galilee converging into to Judea that were normally there, right? 
how many rooms and, and houses and, and available facilities do you think there are for celebrating Passover with that many people? See the problem? Yeah. So they would have to double up, right? So so maybe the Galileans would have it one night, and then this upper room that they have it in probably the next night had another Passover celebration in there with, with Judeans. Quite likely. Okay, because you have so many people jammed into one area that aren't normally there. That's how Jesus can celebrate the Passover and be the Passover. Exactly. In God's perfect arrangement of, of cultural uh, traditions and so forth, that's how Jesus can celebrate and he desired to do it eagerly, right? He wanted to. Like you said many times, I've lusted with you. Okay, I've desired to eat this Passover. That's how he can celebrate with his disciples and yet die the next day as the Lamb of God uh, 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 as the fulfillment of that, that image of the Passover Lamb while the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Right. By the way, they were slaughtered in the temple, and then they would be taken back to the homes to be roasted by fire. They'd have to roast it, and then they would eat it. That's how they would do it. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's how we can solve that apparent dilemma where he says they're right, right at the top, now before the feast of the Passover. Is that, is that done for, for the, the days the, the sun set, the sun down? Yes. And they were vice versa mm -hmm. how they celebrated the day. Right. Yeah, we if you got a John MacArthur Bible, you look in the very beginning of John, and it'll tell you that that's a very good explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Larry. That's right. Very good. Yeah, there's some really good Bible helps. Uh the Bible I have here at my MacArthur uh there several of them, my MacArthur study Bibles at home. This one is the is the um, Reformation Study Bible, and it has it has some similar good footnotes that have helped me understand this as well. Pull this together. Um, but Larry's right, and this is going to be, and we'll go over this again when we get into chapter 18, because one of the things I want to do is I'm going to make the case that I, why I believe that Jesus was actually um, betrayed on what we would call Tuesday night, but it would have been uh, it would have been um, for them after sundown on th that day, right? So technically, yes, they are celebrating it on the day itself, but it's just the evening before. Most of the Judeans would be that evening following, right? So it would be 24 hours later. And that makes sense, too, because the when that also helps us understand why the Jewish leaders were so eager to get the bodies off the cross 24 hours later, right? Uh, why? Because they got to go home and celebrate the Passover. Right? And they want the Romans to do it because they don't want to touch their bodies. Why? Because they can't eat Passover. Ceremonial mm -hmm. unclean. So, um, anyway. You wait, man. I'll tell you, there's so much. They didn't want to go into the Praetorium where. Pilate yeah. was because they want to all of this super, super it just drips with hypocrisy. Okay. Right, so, so that's phrase one. That's the first thing we want to look at. Now let's look at the rest of it here, uh, of the next part. When Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Okay. Um, it, interesting that John chooses that kind of wording. What might you have expected uh, when we when we read earlier? Remember in chapter back in chapter twelve, it says that he knew his 
the hour has come, you know, and he prays, Father, the hour has come and, and uh, glorify uh, the Son. And, um, um, and then there's a voice from heaven, right? I have glorify yourself in this, right, in your Son. And he said, the voice comes from heaven, the Father speaks. I'm trying to find where that is. Okay, here we go. Verses uh, 27, previous chapter. Uh, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, right? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then they hear that voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. What Jesus, what's Jesus talking about here with his hour? He's dreading this hour. Crucifixion. Right? Crucifixion. And specifically, not just physical act of crucifixion, but particularly what? The wrath of God. Right? For, for the sin-bearing aspects of that. That's really... That's going to be laid upon him. And he's practicing what he's preaching, right? Because he's already been preaching many years earlier... Don't fear man who, after destroying the body, has nothing more he can do. But fear what? Fear whom? I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul. <clears throat> so Jesus is practicing what he's preaching. We have no idea what happened. You know, we go, okay, the rat. We know the rest of the earth. Jesus knew the total extent of it. Yes. And that's why he was dead, because he knew who was that from I think if we had a smaller input, you know, we say we don't have any idea what we're talking about. If we had a smaller input, we had a different, it would change us so drastically. You know, I mean, we know that if we don't accept him, then he's going to die for us. That's, 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 that's what we know. But that's all we know. We have not had somebody say, I experienced this, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll talk about that when we get into chapter 19. Exactly, right. And the father has to do his part too, right? Not not lawful. Not, not with others. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and we'll talk about that because also not only him, but also Nicodemus. The text is clear that they personally handled his body. Joseph himself took Jesus' body off himself. And Nicodemus brought the spices and they together. And it was a it was a huge sacrifice they made for Peter. Not just because of the Passover, but Larger because of the reputation. Alright, so preview of coming attractions. We'll get there in chapter 19. Okay, we've got a long ways to go. Um, Alright, so this this phrase here, you would expect him back to, to verse 1 again, the second phrase there, that he knew this, this is Weiss now, since he knew that his hour 
had come, the purpose of which was that he would pass over out of this world to the Father. Okay? And I like the extra prepositions that he puts in there. Pass over out of this world to the Father. It sounds really wordy, but that's what the Greek is saying. Okay? That he would, which is interesting because, you know, um, it, when people talk, when we talk about heaven being up, you know, he went up to heaven or ascended to heaven, um, you know, that the, the uh, the rumor is, anyway, that the cosmonauts back when the Soviet Union was still around went up into space and they look around. And they say, "See, no God. There's no heaven here." Okay, it's foolishness because really, when the scripture is talking about that, it's talking about a a, a uh, dimensionality. Okay, uh, it's what we would. I'm a big sci-fi nut, right? And and if you have what's called transdimensional. Uh, um, um, passage right or, or going from one dimension to another that's closer to what is really happening here and that's captured in the greek there that he would pass over out of this world to the next world that is where god dwells and it's a higher dimension okay when it's talking about going up it's not talking about physically up it's talking about dimensionally up okay hopefully that helps you a little bit Pass over, right? And notice that that he should pass over out of this world. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't make too much of that, but it's that's what it that's what it says there. Okay, All right. So again, you would think though that that John would say here that he knew the purpose of which was to go to the cross and bear the sin of the world, right? Because that's what that's what we've been building to, building to, building to. But John doesn't do that here in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What he says is he looks kind of beyond that to the full completion of the work, right? All the way to the right hand of the Father, which is interesting because that's really the end point of all of this. The cross is not where Jesus finished and, and, and just like finished in the sense of, you might be thinking, well, he said it is finished. That's what he meant is, it is it's actually, it is in the Greek, it's better translated, it is paid, okay? It is paid, paid in full is what that one Greek word means, to tell us that, okay? But the work still continues on. So even after he's resurrected from the dead, and, 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 and he's there with his disciples, go and tell them, I'm ascending to the Father, right? Why is that so important? Well, we're going to get some clues about that as we go through these chapters. He's going to unfold how significant that is. For example, one of the significant things, he's going to tell them, you, you should, you got, I've told you I'm leaving and your hearts are sad, but really you should be glad that I'm leaving. It is for your benefit that I'm going away. Because if I don't come, then, I won't, then the Holy Spirit won't come, right? We'll talk about that when we get there. You, my wife argues about that. Wouldn't it have been better for Jesus after the resurrection to stick around and build his church in person? Right? Yeah. But he actually says, no, it's better that I go away. Right? So John is, again, this is a preview. John is in a very condensed form helping us know what's coming in these chapters and, and that we're going to see and then the, the Lord himself is going to unpack all of this for us. It's significant that that beyond the cross, beyond the grave, is this ascension to the right hand of the Father. That's when his work is finished and he what? Sits down at the right hand of the Father. And, and the writer of Hebrews captures this by saying that he went into that heavenly temple not built with hands and offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, right? And he went to the Father, all the way to the Father. And he says, I have completed this in person, right to the throne of God. 
and he's still there interceding as your high priest and my high priest on your behalf at the justice bar or the, the throne so you say the bar of God's justice right for you and every time Satan steps up and says let me tell you what um pick on Peter pick on me you'll give me a testimony next week let me tell you what Sandy did let's pick on Sandy since we don't pick on look at her she's oh look at that <laughs> every time the devil says let me tell you about what Sandy did to the father right son is saying I'll tell you and by the way, that's the one time Satan doesn't have to lie, is it? Right. He can tell the truth. We give him a lie. For once. Yeah. He may have a hard time getting it out of his mouth, but he can he's not used to telling the truth. But he can tell the truth, but so does the Lord Jesus, right? And he intercedes. So I, I thought this was very interesting that John looks past the, the crucifixion, past the resurrection, right to the ascension, going over, passing over out of this world to my father. Again, all this is going to become significant um, as we as we get into these chapters. Okay, let's look at the. Um, uh, let me see if I'm missing anything from the notes here. Um, so, well, okay, so chapter 17. Just one more example of preview coming attractions here in chapter 17. He begins the whole thing. Um, look at chapter 17, verse one. It says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Right? And uh, and then um, look at verse um, look at verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Right? So Jesus is there. He's gonna open that high priestly prayer by praying for himself and, and asking the Father to fully restore him after the work of redemption and, and the resurrection are finished. And he offers proof to his disciples. Is that Weiss translation you're reading? No, no, this is ESV. And, um, okay, so anyway, that's, that's all, again, it's all coming. Important for us to think that Jesus didn't just die on the cross and get that done and that's it. He sees it There's more, much, much more than that. After that, his work is still going on on behalf of believers. Not for salvation, not for justification, but for our redemption, right? For for our for our sanctification and eventual glorification. Because your your salvation isn't done when your sins are forgiven. Okay? That's just in the middle of something. You still got more to go. Right? That's why we have to be patient with each other, right? The Lord's not finished yet. He's still working. There's a lot of other verses I have down here um, that relate to him departing, but we'll move on, okay? Um, having loved his own who were in the world. Okay, here we go. That's our next phrase, okay? So before we've handled before the Feast of the Passover. We've handled the hour has come for him to depart over out of this world to the Father. And now comes the next phrase there in verse 1. This is John 13, verse 1. You guys need notes, by the way? Any notes? Yeah. Good to see you guys. Um, what's that next phrase say? Having, this is the ESV now, okay? I'll tell you what, let me read this again from Weiss. 
I'll slow down. Having love with a divine self-sacrificial love his uniquely owned ones those in the world he loved them to the uttermost okay it's a lot there so i say we don't get past verse one today that's fine because <laughs> there's so much for you um different translations i've looked at different translations and that's like i said earlier that very last phrase at the end of verse one is hard to translate the ESV says it this way, he loved them to the end. Anybody else's translation say that, love them to the end? Anybody else say something different? I think the NIV said something different, right, maybe? Yeah, he now showed them Okay, yeah, that's that's good. That's getting pretty close to it, okay? That's, that's probably as close as I've heard, okay? Even Wiest right here has trouble translating it in a condensed form. He just uses the word the uttermost. A lot of translations say end. And when I first read that, I was like, the end of what? Right? Marshall reading says in my love them eternally. Love them to eternity. Or love them eternally. Right? Right? Alternate ways. Can you hear how the translators are struggling to try to grab a hold of this? Okay. Um, so when I listen to my go-to authority, John MacArthur, on this. Um, he says it this way, and he translates it this way. I thought this was good. It's sort of a modern vernacular. He loved them to the max. In other words, he loved them to the fullest extent that divine love can love. Okay? But as I got to researching this and thinking about it and praying over the text and trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I realize, and especially as I'm thinking about how he's going to love on them just a few minutes, you know, as he's going to rise up and he's going to wash their feet. He's going to be patient with them even as they're sleeping in the garden, right? All of that. He's going to, when he's getting arrested, he's not going to be like, yeah, these guys need to come along because they need a whipping. You know, none of that. He's, he puts himself forward. He says, okay, if you're seeking me, let these go, right? And, 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 and all along, even as he's going to the cross and continues to humble himself to the cross, he's going to go there and suffer the wrath of God for their sin, including the sins just committed a few hours earlier where they're boasting and bragging in themselves and jockeying for position. Okay. I got to thinking about it that it's, it's not just, listen, it's not just the eternal love of God in the sense that it, it, it fills all of eternity and never ends. That's true. That's one dimension of this. But it also means that it is full in any moment. In other words, it is unmixed with any other kind of ulterior motive. You and I don't know what that kind of love is really like. Yeah. Okay? No matter how much you think you love your spouse or your children, um, it's always mixed with something. There's always a little something there for me. Right? When Jesus says that he loves them, or when the text says that he loves them, it's not, it's not a pretentious love. It's not a love that's mixed with 
well, I love you, but I love him more, right? My wife's talked about this, that he favored some disciples over others, okay? When the text shows us that that he did, that that he spent more time with some than others, for example, he couldn't take all 12, or didn't take all 12, up on the mountain with him during transfiguration. He took three with him, right? She says favorites, okay? What, what, what's really happening there, and this kind of feeds into what he's going to say later when he says it's better that I go away. Why is it better that you go away? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the big reasons is that as a human being, he can only be in one place at a time. And he can, just like you and I are limited, right? No matter how much your good intentions are to try to help a whole bunch of people in the world, right? You can only help the ones God's put in front of you in your life, right? In your family, in your neighbors, those people right in front of you. Yeah, there's a ton of needs out there, but I can, I can only do what I can do, right? Jesus had that kind of limitation as well. And so he can only work with, he has 12, but he works with an inner circle of those guys as well, right? And, and then, But when the Holy Spirit comes, through the Holy Spirit now, he can work individually and personally with every single believer at the same time. Okay? So that helps us to understand yeah. a little bit. Because I tried to feed the world, you, you supply the need to the core, right? And core distributes to the many. That's right. You can't go out and distribute to the many. So he had the three, three over the three different sections, you know, and he would feed them and they would in turn feed the other disciples. Right. Well, they were, they were all, they were all part of, of his plan, but they can only, you only have so much time and energy to focus individually with a person or a small group, right? Hey, yes. I don't think this famous, but I think he had special things he wanted to teach you one because when he leaves, as I said before, they have to lean upon each other for strength. Because this is a devastating time for him. He kept telling them and telling them that like they didn't get it. They didn't get it. But once he is gone and then he ascended and he actually showed himself to them again, and then he ascended the spirit. That's when I think they realized we are, we're, we're what's left. So now we have to lean on each other as much as our time it is. Right. I think of Peter, you know, as, as he denied Christ three times. Okay. People go, why, why would they? Would you? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, he's, he just through, he's seeing them. He, he knows what's going to happen. He knows the flogging, blah, 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 and all this other stuff. I really think that if each one of us would do that, what would we do? But again, what I'm saying is I think that with with him doing this and, and pounding it into him and pounding it into him, he's going to leave and leave and leave. It's like, okay, that went in that bill. That went in that bill. They kept taking individuals, and yeah, he had specials, but I don't But what I'm saying is because he wanted them to be the strong. In that group, there's got to be there's got to be a leader. There's got to be a leader, right? And so, it, but you also have to have other people lean on each other. So I think that's why he did this and. Because they needed each other. If there was not going to be that unity with them, it was like everybody was going to go in this. Absolutely. In fact, he prays for unity. That's a big, big deal. Unity, again, unity grows out of the soil of this kind of love, right? Like I said at the very beginning, it's not the mother that holds the family together, 
It's God's love that will hold the families together. And everybody's commitment to a, to, a, to a love of each other together. I just want to say, God knows people's hearts, and he knows ours. And he knew there was possibly reason he, you know, um, shared some things with the, the inner circle is because he knew our hearts and he knew these were people's work, you know, and these are people that have personalities, huh? And Peter? So, James and John, the Sons of Thunder? I don't know. I don't think they're raising. Maybe they needed the most work. Yeah, that could be. There you go. Uh, yeah, that could be. You're onto something there, Debbie. But maybe they. I don't know. It's a good thought. It's a good thought. But but you know what I'm saying. I mean, the scripture tells us their personalities. They they would Yeah, that's true. They did. All of them were to be leaders. But yeah. a different kind of leader, maybe. Like, yeah. you know, um, example of Moses and Aaron. Maybe they, um, they're all leaders, but there's different kinds of leaders. That's right. And I think you're onto something there. And I think we need to wrap up here um, because we're, we're out of time. But let me help you. Let me see if I can help you with this. Okay. Um, I think it has, the point I'm trying to make is this. It's not that Jesus played favorites, that he loves some believers more than others. Because if that's true with the disciples, if that's the case with disciples, it's also true with us, right? And, and we can fall into this mentality very easily that, uh, well, I'm, I need to ask the pastor to pray for me because he has more pull with God than I do. You heard that? Yes. yes. Wrong. Said that, yes. And that is wrong. The same love, what John is, it's hard to translate here, is that same love. That God's love is 100% devoted to its object, no matter who that is. It's not mixed with, well, I like this person more than I like you. That's not, that's human love. That's not divine love. That's not what's being said here, okay? Understand, it's not just the extent of his love into eternity. It's also... How concentrated that love is, like a hundred percent unmixed, unmitigated. I'm trying to think of an example, right? It's like pure water, right? Unmixed with something else, all right? Uh, unpolluted love. Unpolluted love. There's nothing. Now, why did he seem to seem from a human perspective to play these favorites? Okay, so let's use an illustration. Let's take out the disciples and let's plug in a husband and wife. God says in his design for marriage, he has placed the responsibility of the spiritual leadership and headship of the home with whom? With the husband. With the husband. Does that mean he loves the husband? He loves men more than women. God's a sexist. Is that it? They need more work. Okay. Debbie's on board with that one now, aren't you? That's his role. Yeah, exactly. That's all it is. That's all it is. We get all wound up in all this because because we're judging. Listen. We get into trouble when we when we impose on God human characteristics, right? I love this way. The best love I've ever seen is this way. It must be like God. No. He's very different than we are, okay? He's holy, all right? And that's what that means. He's separate. He's other. He's great. He's in a class by himself. 
and he loves like this as only God can love, unmixed, unpolluted. And what he's doing instead is he's respecting these roles. Same with the Godhead. The Father doesn't love the Son more than the Holy Spirit. Even though the Holy Spirit has voluntarily ranked himself under the Son, such that the Son can, you know, work through work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to bring people into his kingdom. Right? But they, they have volunteered to rank themselves under so that the Son submits to the Father and the Spirit to the Son, right? And they they rank themselves under like this in a voluntary thing, but it doesn't have anything to do with the lack of love for one over the other. And it's the same with a husband and wife, right? If God doesn't love the wife any less than the husband. It's just put them in different roles so that there can be peace in the family. Same with the church. Same with the founding of the church. Same principle, right? So we got to unwind all of our cultural baggage that we have in our heads from, from our culture we live in where we're, we confuse those things very readily. I'm you know, not the leader, so I don't have as much value. You absolutely do, right? It has nothing to do with the role you have. You have the value that you have. But that's because God says he has that kind of unmixed, unmitigated, unpolluted love that lasts and loves them to the max. And it says to the end, it doesn't mean he loved them until the cross and he died and couldn't love them anymore. No, it continues to love and it stretches into eternity and continues. The best definition of this I keep coming back to again and again as we close, is Ephesians 3. So let's turn there. Paul helps us kind of get a little bit of a, a glimpse of this love. Okay? So that, that word end is not a very good word to leave. Probably. Because the end, I mean, if you think of the end, there's a beginning and there, there's an end. Exactly, right. Like it's, it comes to an end. Right. Yeah. Which is why I wanted to take the time to slow down and really unpack what that means. Um, you know, another word that I encountered when you look at how this is translated, that same word is translated throughout the New Testament, end. is the word fulfillment. The word end? Or? Yeah, the, well, the word that's recording there, in progress. Is, um, that's the word telos, okay? It's the only place in John where, where um, is that right? Yeah, it's the only place in John where that's used. It's used in other places as well, and it's also translated fulfillment, which I like. I think that comes closer to it. it it's a fulfilled love. Okay. All right. So Ephesians 3, I think this is going to help us. This is probably our best biblical definition for this kind of love. Paul helps us understand this. And even here, he has trouble putting it in words, and you can hear that, okay? Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. Okay, actually, let's start with verse 14. Okay. That's a kind of a lead up to it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Here we go. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded, what? In love. Rooted and grounded in love. In other words, that's love of the soil out of which all of this is growing. Okay? May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the, now watch this, four dimensions, breadth, length, and height, and depth, and to know the what? Love of Christ. And the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is struggling 
to help us grab a hold of this multi-dimensional love that completely surrounds you, penetrates you. It's above you. It's below you. It's to the side of you. It's in front of you. It's behind you. It's, it will be there a million years from now. And it's not just duration. It's also saturation at any point in time. It is unpolluted. God is not pretentious. When he says he loves you, he loves you to the full extent that he can love, which is eternal and self-sacrificing and looks past your sin. Wow. Even Paul had a hard time. It, and what he, his prayer here is for them, for the Ephesians, and for us. What a good thing to pray for ourselves and for yeah. each other, right? That we may be able to grasp... Notice how he says that you may be able to comprehend which, which is unknowable. <laughs> you can't know this love. How, how can I understand something that's not understandable? God can bear it by the Holy Spirit. That's right. Holy Spirit. This is the richness of the love of God. It can never be exhausted in any length of time or in any moment of time. There's no sin that is too great to stick up out of it. Right? To pull you out of it. Wow. Have I, have I said enough? <laughs> okay. One more question. Yes. Where mm -hmm. it, it says he loves them or his disciples, is that the question? Or is that all? Good question. Because even in his high priestly prayer, he prays for them and then he prays for us. I think, I think yes, in this case, um, it, it is, it is, Focused on his disciples because that's what his what his words are going to be. They're going to be focused on. That's a great point because as we unpack this, there are several points in these chapters that don't apply to us. For example, he's going to say the Holy Spirit's going to recall to your memory the things that I've that I've taught you. Right. Well, we don't have that. That's not for us. Uh, so there are some things that don't apply to us. But by extension of what he says in chapter seventeen. This kind of love, and, and by, also by what Paul and the other apostles themselves as well, when they write about the love of God, they in no uncertain terms apply that to all believers. Right? And remember, John, what, what the idea here is, and I like the way Weiss says it here, is uniquely owned ones, okay? That they are his special people, okay? And that has echoes of chapter 10, where this, the shepherd is calling out of that block of, of, of apostate Judaism certain sheep that are his, right? And so he says, I have sheep who are of another flock, them two I must come, must bring, right? And there will be what? One flock and one shepherd. And he lays his life down for all of them. Okay? So all of that is to say that even though here in this text, uh, these chapters, Jesus is facing them and talking to them, I think it, there is a broader application. I don't think it stretches yeah, scripture true. at all to say that it does not just his disciples that he loves this way, but all of his sheep. Because he gives his life. And he's going to say in there, no greater love has no one than this, that he what? Laid in his life. For his well, well, my know. translation reads, which is the New Living, mm -hmm. it says, he had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth. Now he loves them to the very end. Which his ministry at that time was on earth. Now it's not on earth. 
So it seems to me it, be, it would be those 12 who he's specifically talking to. Not to say that, like you said, application yeah, goes right. on to us. Right. You're, you're right, you're right. So, so the interpretation is that this 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 whole talk, these four chapters, and it is directed at them. But the application certainly does apply to us because he's going to go on after foot washing and say, "You need to now love each other with this same kind of love that I've demonstrated." Yeah, good, good point, Larry. Thank you. Sorry. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we uh, we could we could spend another hour trying yeah. to unpack and understand this love at least. It, I, I think it's going to take eternity, um, and even in eternity, we will have still some small idea of the vastness, the height and depth and width and length, as Paul calls it in Ephesians three, um, of your love, love of Christ. What an amazing, amazing love um, that you would love not just desirable people but your enemies we were weak and we were ungodly and we were enemies and we were sinners christ died for us such an amazing truth and we are now left here handed that kind of love handed that example we are to love at that standard help us by your grace we can't do this that's not natural love at all this isn't naturally part of us we need your help, and we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to help us in our weaknesses in that regard. Help us to take it seriously, not to sit on the shelf and admire it, but to put it on and, and, and to serve one another with this kind of unmixed, unpolluted uh, moment, moment by moment love, putting others ahead of ourselves. What a tall order. Pray that you would accomplish this for your glory. In Jesus' name.